Got your Bibles with you? Let's open to Luke chapter 5 here this morning. There's some around, or you can pull it up on your phone. Um, we're going to pick up at, at Luke uh, chapter 5, Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 5, 12. And I'm going to review just a little bit of what I did last week because it sets us up for the end of the chapter. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are seeing what Jesus is doing. He's hanging out with sinners. Have you ever heard of such a shocking thing? Jesus is hanging out with sinners and they're becoming critical. They're trying to expose him. And you know, if there's anything that we have forefront as our goal in life, it's to become like Jesus. It's not to be better than other people or somehow put on something that we're not. It's okay to be who you really are because we all just need Jesus. Jesus has called four fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, to a life of full-time discipleship. Jesus said to Peter, from now on, you will catch men. And so he begins to train them as to what it looks like. What does this mean? What does this look like to become a fisher of men, to be catching men and making disciples? And if we, again, we want to do it like Jesus, not like religious people do. And often in our sincerity, we start to get it a little bit wrong. And we're all susceptible to forgetting the heart of God. And the heart of Jesus is he looks on people that society has completely thrown away, and he doesn't look on them with judgment. He looks on them with compassion. The very people the religious leaders would, would say, oh, the reason you're suffering is because of sin in your life. Jesus looks at them and says, God has something special to do in your life. Even driving... Um, came down early yesterday morning for the men's fellowship yesterday morning. And I, I remember as somebody that was in my church, um, Friday evening, my wife and I had dinner with a couple that were part of our church when I pastored Calvary Chapel, Portland. And I remembered many years ago that I've known him a long time. This man called me in a panic one evening. Now, his job was he was an alcohol distributor in the Portland area. He was one of the largest alcohol distributors, distribute, distributed to hundreds of restaurants around the Portland area. But he had a problem. The more the Lord was working in his life, the more he felt like things didn't line up with his business. Not just that he was selling alcohol, but he goes, I am required by law to deliver alcohol to the strip clubs in Portland. And he goes, Pastor Terry, I don't want to be there. And I don't want to send my employees there to deliver alcohol. And I am required by law. I can't just say I have, I have a conviction and I won't go there. As one of the distributors, he was required to go there. 
And you could imagine as we're discovering that we want to serve the Lord and live for the Lord, how all of us have had things in our own lives that we suddenly saw didn't, they didn't fit in our lives. And, you know, it would be so easy to just be condemning of somebody like that. You call yourself a Christian and how could you call yourself a Christian and sell alcohol or deliver alcohol? You know, and I knew that the, the grace of God and that the Lord wasn't being judgmental of him. And I said, this is a problem. And I said, do your job and start praying intently for the Lord to work this out. And the Lord worked it out. And there's so many people out there in society that we would write off. And certain whole segments of Christianity look at people in their life or in their suffering, and there is immediately a judgment. The textbook ones would be, well, the reason you would ever get sick is because of sin in your life. Have you ever been around those people? Yes. Well, the reason you're sick or you have this ailment is because of sin. And if you would just confess your sin, brother, sister, and you know that is not the heart of God. Did you know that? That is absolutely not the heart of God. Now, of course, sin can bring suffering into our life. But with, it's just obvious that sin, sin and uh, shall I say suffering is in all of our lives, even to those who are not in, you know, completely caught up in a life of sin. And so the grace of God is different. And I remember as a young pastor at one of my first pastor's conferences with the gathering nationally of the Calvary pastors and Pastor Chuck began to teach. And he would say, you know, he said, when I was driving here to the conference, I heard a siren and a, an aid car, a paramedic truck, an ambulance went to a car accident. And he said there were other sirens and the policeman arrived on the scene. And he used that as an illustration to tell all of us pastors what ministry is really like. There are some who arrive on the scene, like the policemen. It is their whole job to find fault. Who broke the law? And Pastor Chuck said to us, pastors, that is not your job. It is not to your job to roll up on the scene to a hospital room or wherever it is and to start finding fault. Our job is the paramedic. Their job is not to find fault. Their job is completely focused on healing and restoration. I, that has stayed with me probably for 30 years that my job is not the policeman, it's the paramedic. There are plenty of other fault finders out there, so I don't have to do that job. 
and people get into trouble for things that aren't their fault. But because Jesus showed up and he was ready to heal rather than find fault, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like that. And if I'm going to err at all, it's going to be on the side of grace, not on the side of fault finding. Amen? And so in this chapter, Jesus heals, restores the lives of three people. Three people that society would say they are outcasts, their lives are over, there is no hope for these people. And yet Jesus goes right to them and heals. The first one, we now we looked at these last week, but most of you weren't here last week because you were sick. So I get to use some old material on you. Um, but really, this sets us up for the end of the chapter that's so important. Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus cleanses a leper. That's in verses 12 through 15. And I'm not going to read that section again. As I said, we did it last week. But in the Bible, leprosy is a picture of sin. Because of the way that leprosy uh, infects the body, it starts as a little spot. It, it spreads. It begins to defile and decay as the body sickens. It goes deeper than what can be sin, what can be seen on this, the skin, like sin does. It goes deeper and deeper. Probably most significantly is that leprosy, like sin, is incurable. No one is healed of leprosy. It requires, that's why it's called cleansing in our story. The leper was cleansed. And because of its, its, its con, contagious um, quality to it, automatically a leper was isolated, quarantined, something we, we know so much about now. But the leper was looked on as somebody who was already dead. They were dead. No one could be around them. No one could touch them. And it was an incurable disease and something that was really seen as, well, this is the judgment of God. Not just we feel sorry for them for having contracted leprosy, but it was that extra stigma of judgment. What have they done wrong? I've often thought about, you know, leper colonies. There are still leper colonies in the world. And I thought of children born into leper colonies. And, I, and it, it occurred to me at one point that children growing up in leper colonies would think that leprosy was normal. Isn't that strange? Just like if you grew up in a dysfunctional home, you think that home is normal. And then you go visit your friends' houses and you realize, oh, not everybody lives like my parents live. My home was like that. Lepers were required to just keep their distance. It separates, kind of like sin separates us in this world. But here a man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What a statement of faith. This incurable disease, Lord, 
I know that if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does three things, touches him, which is something you never did. You would never have any physical contact. Now, this man is full of leprosy, which means his body is completely decayed. He's probably lost body parts, and he's probably gross to look at. Leprosy attacks the skin, the nerve endings, you know, the nose, the ears fall off. And like sin, it deadens the ability to feel. You can't feel anything. But Jesus touched this man who was full of leprosy. He said, I am willing to cleanse you. And he cleansed him and then told him to go quietly and show himself to the priests and make an offering. What's fascinating is here is an incurable disease. And yet in the book of Leviticus 14, there are instructions for what to do when somebody is cleansed of leprosy. So right there in the law, provision is made for the impossible, for a miracle. And that's us, isn't it? We, the fact that we could be cleansed of sin, restored to relationship with God, and brought back into society and given hope and purpose for life. That is the picture of a leper who once was was just separated, isolated, and now made whole. And he was to show himself to verify that this is, in fact, a miracle. It's amazing. Then Jesus heals a man, but forgives a man of sin. Secondly, it's in verses 16 through 26. Now, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. The crowds have gathered to see him heal and to hear him teach. And there's so many people crowded into a house that there are four friends of this lame man who want to bring him to Jesus to be healed, but they can't get in. And so, you know, the story, they go up on the roof, they peel back the, the tiles on the roof and they lower this man. What a strange sight. You're crowded into a, a, a house full of people with, with Jesus and the roof tears open and they lower this man down. Now, of course, Jesus heals him, but it says that Jesus saw their faith. Did you know you can see faith? Jesus saw their faith by their actions. And he didn't just heal the man. He said, your sins are forgiven you. Now, are you at all aware of how much this would irritate and provoke the religious leaders? To make a statement like that, your sins are forgiven you. Because Who has the ability to forgive sins? Only God. And so this just outraged them. Completely outraged them that Jesus would claim that he had the ability to forgive sins. Now, I love to talk to people in that are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and they will typically deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And they'll make that common statement. You know, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, he did. 
Well, I will say, well, he did, but how about he just acted like God? And a story like this is perfect because Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. And often a Jehovah's Witness will say, well, it doesn't mean that he's claiming to be God. I'll say, look, religious leaders thought that's what he meant. Who are you being a man claims that he can forgive sins? And again, here is somebody that is lame and would be really looked at as the judgment of God is on their life. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would just write them off, would just completely write them off. The third life that Jesus restores is in verses 27 through 30, and Jesus forgives the sins of a tax collector. It's tax season, right? Now, I need my CPA to do his job. But in these days, tax collectors were looked on as, again, just completely written off. I am going to read these verses, 27 to 30. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, do you know who this man is? Levi becomes Matthew, one of the apostles. And in this culture, here is a Jewish man working for Rome, collecting taxes, and the rule was he had an amount he had to collect for Rome, but anything above that he could get from the people he could keep. So he was doubly hated. And as a Jewish tax collector, again, if if a religious leader even accidentally brushed up against a tax collector, he just was considered unclean. He had to go purify himself and just go through all of this trouble. And so here's really three people that are the extreme. Three people that society would completely have written off. A leper, a paralytic, and a tax collector. Ooh. Levi immediately left everything and followed Jesus. Now, this tell, tells me that, Jesus, that Levi has been watching Jesus. This isn't the first encounter with Jesus. This isn't the first time he's even heard of Jesus. This means that Levi has seen what's been going on, has had enough information to make a decision. And that is true about you and I. The Lord works with us, works, works with us, shows himself to us, and at some point says, now it's time to make a decision. And Levi doesn't, 
doesn't just follow Jesus. He invites all of his other tax collector friends over and throws a, a what? A feast. And again, this just irritates the scribes and Pharisees. And this provokes them to really say, you know, why, why are you even around these people? Two questions. Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors? And why are your disciples feasting instead of fasting? To eat with people in this society. Now, if we're going to have any kind of church fellowship, there has to be food involved, right? And it's, it's, it's well known that Calvary Chapel is really in the, at our small groups called Calvary Chapel. That's right. We get it, men's fellowship yesterday, donuts and coffee. You know, the spiritual quality of that time is just so much better with donuts. After all, they're holy. Just, just go with me, okay? That's the best one I got this morning. But literally, if you sat down and had a meal with people, it would be served family style, bowls of things, a loaf of bread. And if you reached out and tore off a piece of bread, and if others at the table tore off a piece of bread, you're often dipping that bread in the same juices. And if you're eating the bread and I'm eating the bread, we're, we're, double dipping was allowed, you realize? And so you would never share a meal with somebody you didn't want to be intimate with. Jews would never eat a meal with a Gentile because they don't want to be one. You're becoming one, literally, by having a meal together. And here is Jesus, the Son of God, eating a meal with the very people the religious leaders despise and have already considered dead. This pushes the limit of our comforts, doesn't it? I grew up in church, and you didn't associate with certain people. The adults in the little church I grew up in in Los Angeles didn't, I don't think they even knew any non-Christians, much less associate with them. And when I remember that sense of separation and superiority, I think in that I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I don't want to be like that. I want to be out there with people. Back in my 20s, I was touring with a band, and we would go to England and do evangelism in the north part of England, West Yorkshire. And we would go and minister to teenagers in the schools. We would play in the public schools. They don't call them public schools. But we would do like 30 concerts in two weeks. And we would go to the schools, do an evening concert at the youth club. After we were done for the day, some of us would go to a nearby town and go to a pub 
where we knew underage drinkers would be. The kids would be there, even though they shouldn't be there. And we would go hang out with them and sit with them at the table in the bar while they're drinking and tell them about the Lord. And I I so clearly remember these 16, 17-year-old kids in this pub saying, "Now, now, do you mean if I believe in Jesus, I have to stop doing this and doing this and doing this? And she's yelling it out in this pub. And it really put me on the spot. And I said, yes. It's not because... God's not going to love you if you do those things, but he's really calling you to a different life. That girl received the Lord the next day. Some of the best times I've had in serving the Lord and doing ministry has been out there at the places where the church doesn't want to go because they're not coming here. They might stumble in. It's a mall. They're going to go, what's... What is, what's that over there in the food court? What kind of food do I get at verbatim? I'm going to get the word of God. And again, I love how Jesus just went out of his way for the very people that the church is often not interested in. Do you know the beginnings of Calvary Chapel was back in the 60s? You all know this, but in just a reminder that there was a whole generation of the hippie generation when the Lord reached them and they started coming to church by the thousands and thousands. They didn't just show up at Calvary. They showed up at a lot of the churches around Orange County. And do you know that they weren't welcome? Because they didn't wear shoes. They didn't dress right. The guys had long hair. They didn't shower. And most of the churches, whenever Calvary Chapel started growing and exploding, were suspicious of Calvary Chapel. Those kids can't really be saved. Because there's so many of them, it can't be real. Do you know that's that's exactly what the churches of Southern California said during the Jesus movement? There were so many young people whose lives were changed, this can't really be the real thing. And in some parts around the world, and even today, because Calvary is different, doesn't follow the traditions, that has actually been looked on as a cult. Until the Calvary has been there long enough to show that they are very orthodox in the doctrine and the practices, just like historic Christianity. And I love it how Jesus breaks the rules. The rules that we make. Because he loves people. So the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees have these questions. Why are you eating with sinners? Jesus answered, verse 31 and 2. Said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love that. If he's come to heal, 
then you have to go to where the sick people are. Could you imagine a doctor only hanging out with people who are well? But that's the religious leaders. Again, they saw Matthew and his friends as just sinners beyond hope, beyond help. And then Jesus answers a second question. And the question is, why are your disciples feasting instead of fasting? Have you ever been around Christians who thought the more spiritual you are, the more somber and sad you have to be? I've been around those people too. The more, it's, it's really kind of a, an outward sign of legalism. You're grumpy all the time. Somehow you have to show you're disapproving of people's lifestyles. And another sign I didn't mention of legalism is you can never associate with sinners. That's a sure sign of legalism. If you ever worried about becoming legalistic, a sign of legalism is that you are afraid that if you associate with somebody, that's a sign of approving of their lifestyle. Now, it's easy. Was Jesus approving of the lifestyle of the sinners? Of course not. I, I had... I had lunch with a man in in Portland many years ago that was in an occupation that might have been a little questionable, and somebody in my church heard about it. And he was so angry with me that I would even associate with that person. I said, because he assumed that my association meant I was approving. I said, you know, he needs Jesus. And don't you feel like an idiot to accuse me of approving of that person? Oh, I I hope I made him feel really bad because he should have felt bad. (laughs) So Jesus is the physician who is there to heal the sick. But then the question, why are your disciples feasting? And so Jesus speaks of himself as a bridegroom celebrating with the guests. That's verses 33 to 35. Then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. He said to them, can you make friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus is the bridegroom. He's with his church, and he's saying, as long as I am with them, it's time of feasting, of celebration. In the Jewish wedding, the whole week before the wedding, would the guests would be there, arrive, and they would be celebrating the whole week before the wedding and then the week after the wedding the couple would be at their house and guests could come by the house for a whole week after the house and celebrate so that's a custom it didn't catch on in america because the couple wants to go be alone afterwards but a whole two-week period of celebration and jesus is the the bridegroom with his church And he's saying, the time is going to come when I'll go away 
and they will, they will fast. There will be sorrow. But right now, again, they don't realize who Jesus is. Joy over being with Jesus. Joy over being with Jesus. I can always tell when a Christian doesn't really know Jesus because there's not much joy in their life. There's just not much joy. And, and I think when you and I are around people out in the world, we need to have a joy. I just want to encourage you. It's okay to not just have a disapproving eye of them, but just to enjoy being with them and not to react to everything that they're doing that might be different from your lifestyle. And then Jesus tells a parable, verses 36 to 39, about really the nature of his work. It's the parable of the cloth and the wineskins. Now, when I was a child, I learned a definition for parable. Do you know what a parable is, a definition? It's an earthly story. You have to say it in a childlike voice. An earthly story with the heavenly meaning. Did you ever learn that definition? The word parable means to lay alongside. Now, there is a plain, raw truth that the religious leaders can't hear, nor can they even understand. And so because they can't hear it, Jesus lays alongside of it an illustration. That's the point of a parable. If they can understand the parable, then maybe they can make the connection and understand the spiritual truth. Verse 36, then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. So here is where we're building up to. The nature of Jesus' ministry is not to come and fix an old broken system. But he has come to make all things new, a new beginning. That's what he does. He did to the religion of Israel, which, by the way, was fine when God gave it to them in the Old Testament. The religious leaders corrupted it. They formalized it. It's what we do in Christianity. We take a good work and we formalize it and legalize it and it loses its nature. And then so every so often God does a brand new work. A brand new work. That's the nature of of revivals is to do a new work. And Judaism was like an old garment that couldn't just be patched. We're not going to take a new piece of cloth and patch the old garment as if that's going to fix it. They'll be tearing and it just, it just won't work. In Isaiah 61 10, Isaiah said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's our salvation. Clothing is often pictured in that way in the Bible. As the rest of that verse, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Then Jesus said, verse 37, 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. A new garment and new wine that needs to be put into new wineskin. It, it's just our nature to formalize things. And then the whole nature of the wineskin is the old wineskin becomes rigid and inflexible. But that's really us. We in our lives become rigid and inflexible. And so on one hand, we pray, Lord, would you do a new work in our lives? And then I don't like the way he does it. Because it upsets the way I'm used to doing things. And so it's just a fact that Say in our culture, churches that have been around even 10 and 20 and 30 years start to become inflexible. Because in the beginning, we were open to anything. We hadn't figured out how we want to do things. But now after 20 years, we have the way we do things. And there are often things that aren't, have nothing to do with spiritual things. It's just how we do potlucks how we're going to do a church picnic, how we do baptisms, and all these things that are, are, they become comfortable and familiar to us. And frankly, this is where we are as Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel started in the late 60s, and all the way through the 70s and 80s, we were just riding the wave of the revival of the Jesus movement. Everything was new. I was in my, I was a teenager during the revival in the 70s. I was in my 20s all the way through attending Costa Mesa, learning to do the ministry. I was excited. I was getting to play music and travel the world. And I'm thinking, this is not the church I grew up with. And I, I was so excited to serve the Lord. I remember my first missions trip uh, tour in Australia on the plane coming home after seeing about 300 kids accept the Lord while we're doing rock and roll concerts in the schools. And if my mother ever saw me doing that, she would have dropped dead. And I thought to myself, I could do this. I just so much wanted to be a part of that. If that's what it looks like to serve God, then God, I'm all in. I'm all in. It was so much better than other music situations I had been in and just the music business. The ministry compared to the business was night and day. But I knew that this was breaking all the rules because God cannot possibly use rock and roll. Did you know that? 
You know, before Calvary Chapel, this never would have happened. Drums and guitars on stage. You don't even know that. And many, any of you remember these days? There would be a piano and an organ up here. And a man in a plaid suit waving his arms to lead hymns. But suddenly God was going to do a new work. And that new work could never fit with the old form. It was fine. And those people were fine. And that form still exists and is perfectly fine. But a new generation could not go to that form. And it wouldn't minister to them. And so often I meet people in the world who really, I'll say I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor and they'll say, well, I've never heard of Calvary Chapel. And if they go to church, I'll say, you know that music you sing at church with guitars and drums? And they'll say, yeah. I say that started at Calvary Chapel. Did you guys know that? The music that the style of church now that the world does all around the world started at Calvary Chapel. And it started really with these teenagers, hippies that got saved and they would show up at church with their guitars and say, can I play a song? And suddenly there was more and there was more and there was more of them. And it created a wave in, in the church and in Christian music. And it started, it was a new wineskin. God was doing a new work and a new style of church started in the late 60s and through the 70s. And again, that's why we're here. That's why I'm in the ministry and not out playing drums somewhere. That's the only reason I'm here. The very style, the new form, the new wineskin that churches follow came from those hippies that came into the church and brought their style of music into the church. It was amazing. It was so obvious that even my mother believed that it was a work of God. It was an amazing testimony. Amazing, amazing testimony. I probably talk about a lot about the early days of Calvary, just because it's a reference to remember how God works, that he still wants to work, and that honestly, because we're now 50 plus years into the movement, do you know we're in danger of formalizing? And I don't want to formalize. I don't want to get so rigid in how the right way to do things that I'm not open to God working. I don't, I don't want to be like that. I'm just telling you, I don't want to be that kind of person. I want it to be simple. I want it to be a real work of God. No compromises on, you know, the Bible or the work of the spirit. But how is God going to work? And I just encourage each of you to just say, Lord, here I am. Would you use me? And have the worship team come up and
And as we're closing this morning, you know, I don't know always the things that I'm saying, how they're resonating with you this morning. But I just want to encourage you to say, Lord, renew my heart. At any point in our lives, we could start to feel like that leper who is cast aside, who is isolated. Do you know how easy it is to go there? If you've been sick for a week or two, you start to feel that isolation, that separation. If something discouraging happens in your life, sometimes it's hard to recover. And you think, I can't go to church. I'm not sure if I fit there. Not sure if I belong at church. And we don't want to, we don't want to just allow those kinds of things to settle into our hearts and into our minds. We are all like the leper or like Levi, who was just considered outside of any hope. And we have to work to remember the grace of God.